Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of the Digital CXO Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Bizard, and my guest today is Mitch Ashley, Principal Analyst for TechStrong Research and CTO for TechStrong Group, publisher of DevOps.com, Security Boulevard, Container Journal, TechStrong TV, and of course, Digital CXO. Hey, Mitch, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Hey, Mike. Uh, good as always, especially when I get to talk with you. All right. Well, thank you. Uh, there's some smoke in my office already. Where's that coming? <laughs> <laughs> um, here's what I want to get started with. So there's tons of these surveys talking about obstacles and hurdles for digital transformation, and inevitably they point back to people. And it seems to me that part of this issue with people is we're looking for people with the right skills. And on one side is the business people and on the other side is the tech people. The tech side of this equation, I'm not sure digital people get because it really is about hiring people who are into agile programming, DevOps. They're kind of at the front end of this transition in how we think about IT. And a lot of these folks aren't necessarily looking for salary and benefits as their only measurement for why they want to work for somebody. It's about the culture as much as anything else. And it's about the enjoyment of the day and flexibility for that matter. Mm -hmm. So what does it take to kind of create the right environment to attract that kind of talent? And what are people missing? Well, you know, salary, all that kind of stuff is important. But I think in uh, let me talk about developers just as kind of a category of, of uh, people. Uh, to employ, uh, there are a lot more important things than salary and compensation. And though that's very important, um, what I get to work on, what's the project we're doing? What am I building? Am I building an insurance process claims processing system? Am I building an app that's going to show up on mo mobile phones across the world? Um, what am I, what do I get to develop in? Or do I have some choice about what kind of technologies that I use? I develop on a Mac. I'm a Windows per or Linux person. Um, I, this is the stack that I like to work in, or maybe I'd like to some, get some experience in a different environment. Maybe doing Kubernetes is new to me. So I want to work somewhere where I can learn that so I can leverage it in my career. So a lot of it is the project and the technology that they get to work with. Probably the third thing is the people that they get to work with. When I, when you talk to people in an interview process, we're always assessing each other, right? Developers do the same thing and they're looking for technical competence. So these people I can work with and learn from, or people that I can contribute to, um, you know, people that I'll respect at the end of the day, because there is kind of that level of, you know, whether you're a lawyer, I guess, or you're a, a developer, you know, it, it's like, I want to be respected for what I do. And so th those are all things that are super important. And when people are in high demand, guess what? They can put a premium on those aspects of the job as opposed to just salary and bonus and benefits. And yet every time I look now at one of these job postings, since we started doing something on devops.com about the five most interesting DevOps jobs each week, it seems like the the descriptions are all the same. It's like all these great benefits, this is that and the other thing. And it's not a lot of uh, uh, ability to convey anything about the environment. So it must be difficult to get people to apply to those jobs in the first place, because I think most people who have DevOps schools are pretty comfortable where they are, right? So um, I don't get the sense that a lot of DevOps people are looking to jump jobs from one thing to the other. So. Um, if that's the case, then 
do we need to spend more time on training? And some of these help wanted jobs are actually ridiculous. They're looking for people who have, you know, six years of Kubernetes experience when the technology's only been around in the enterprise for three. So what is the disconnect in the recruitment process? Well, uh, you're, you're describing the 12 foot high unicorns that are purple that have 10 years experience in technology that's only been around for three. Yeah, that's the and, and 20 other skills that never exist in one person, right? That uh, and I've seen those been around folks generating those kind of job descriptions. Well, I think part of it is developers operate as a community. And again, I'm just going to use that as kind of my generic term for DevOps people and SRI people and, you know, the the broader sense of it but they they operate in communities and they go to meetups and they're online and participating and you know maybe they're you know on uh, searching for code and chatting with someone about uh, a project on github or whatever i think a lot of the the job opportunities or checking out opportunities happens that way it's the back channel that they're talking with so i would be talking with my technical staff uh, to make sure they know what they're looking for. And if you like working here, find or let us know who are the great people you know that would be really good to work here because you like to work with people you like to work with, right? So let's bring them in so they can be part of the team. I think that's a big part of it. And to what I was saying before, those job descriptions, none of them describe what you're going to work on. They list a bunch of technologies and, okay, I checked the boxes, but why is your list of technologies any better than the next job description? So I, I don't know how much developers, technical people truly just bank on the job description as much as the company and what I'm going to work on, and then they're going to ask their friends. All right. So if you were relying solely on the hr department to recruit talent for you i would posit you're already screwed they don't know what any of that stuff is anyway so you know <laughs> how are they going to filter a resume doesn't have those keywords on it so you must not be qualified there's a lot of people qualified that don't have kubernetes on it that could do that kind of work all right that leads us to our next topic which is related in this sense we're starting to see vendors who provide various services start to bang the drum for something called no-ops. Well, we have DevOps, and we all kind of understand what that is, but no-ops seems mm -hmm. to be what they're saying is that they will run IT on behalf of your organization, and essentially you are now outsourcing the uh, responsibility for this particular platform or task. Do you think that that's a viable approach or ultimately does that create a disconnect with the business? Because, you know, now I'm trying to work with some third party service provider that doesn't really get the business. Uh, first, every time I hear no ops, I have to I snicker a little bit because I think back to early in my career doing assembly language, machine level stuff. There's a no op command, which means nothing happens. So that's a different kind of kind of no op, if you will, no ops. I think the whole evolution of DevOps, you know, it started with we won't need operations people because developers will do it all. No, now we have new job roles like platform engineering and SRE. So yes, we need lots of operations kinds of roles and people. I, I think no op no ops is sort of uh, somebody else's ops. In other words, somebody else is doing that, or some automation or tool is doing that to some extent. Right? It's never truly non-human, or at least we're you know, not involving humans in some way. I don't think we're there yet. AI isn't there yet. Probably ain't going to be there for a long time. So, you know, I would look at, so when, when a vendor says, no, we do no up. 
well, tell me what kind of no-op you do, what operations aren't being done, and is it because they're no longer needed? You don't have those functions in your software, you've automated it, or you're doing it for me or for someone else. That, that's that's going to be one of those three answers. So there's ops there somewhere. Somewhere there's ops, and it's just a question of whose payroll it's on at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> All right. Good point. Speaking of payroll and money, there's also a lot of conversations going on about what is the real cost of the cloud and the total cost of the cloud. We've seen a bunch of workloads get shifted since the pandemic. And you and I were at a dinner in uh, Dallas, and there was a debate about this very subject. And we won't say whose names were there, quite, but quite heated debate, actually. Yeah, exactly. And the, the, the issue came down to one person was of the view that um, workloads that run on premise, when you add it all up, are less expensive, especially for certain classes of workloads that are performance sensitive or data that is um, security concerned. And so that it was better to keep a fair amount of workloads on premise. And for that matter, you know, more than half of workloads still are running on premise. Mm -hmm. The other person was passionate about that that person really didn't understand how to use the cloud, the economics of the cloud, what's involved with really optimizing the cloud and was doing people a disservice. And that's where the argument was. What's your take on where are we with this discussion? Because it does seem like people are getting rather uh, polar or polarized by it. Well, well, like everything, it's not as simple as it sounds, right? It's not a binary answer. It's, you know, it's operating the cloud is cheaper or operating cloud is more expensive. Yes, it's both. It just depends on your situation. And of course, there's the whole FinOps, which is really understanding what your expenses are in the cloud. And are you paying, getting what you're paying for? Are there ways to leverage your, your dollars more effectively? Yeah, I think it comes down to a couple of variables. One is cash flow. Depending on your business, cash flow is important to all of this, right? But for let's say a startup or a company that's not capital intensive in terms of how they're valued, um, they can much more easily turn to a fungible um, services oriented kind of budget spend. And it's no big deal. I mean, I worked in the regulated inside of the telephone industry way back and they were asset valued. So that was a big deal thinking about going, putting anything out in services versus buying stuff to put in our data center. Um, so that that's one big variable. Two is, you know, you're not just trading off spending money on A or B. It's also there's a cost to migrate. There's a cost to operate. There's a cost to learn it. And lift and shift can kind of mitigate that when you're moving stuff to the cloud. Uh, but it also is, you know, frankly, you have you have you're spending money on different kinds of things because you may be spending on a lot of more services in a cloud provider, other third parties that you might not be using in your own data center um, or a co-location for that for that matter. So it's not it's a good debate, but there is no one answer. I think you have to look at you know, your dollars. The, the other the third factor is, by the way, is sort of uh, run rampant or out of, out of control use where you're not managing the use of the cloud because anybody that's got a credit card can go set up an account with any cloud provider, any cloud service, any SaaS app. And IT, you know, has been the warrior of no to say, no, you can't do that. That's less true today. At least I hope it is for most organizations. 
Um, but you can find yourself with 52 Amazon accounts, AWS accounts. And now what do we do? What are we spending all that money on? Is there a more effective way to do it? So I think that's also a factor. Um, so the answer is there's no answer to your question, Mike. Hope that helps. All right. <laughs> How do I know if my developers are a bunch of drunken sailors that are just spending money up in the cloud going crazy? Because, you know, I'm if I'm a digital business person, I, how would I know? Well, first of all, who who has a company credit card? I'd start there <laughs> versus their own credit card. But that's not that's not a fail safe because folks will use their own credit card to spend on stuff. And it may have corporate things on it, too, on those services. And one thing I would say is, I don't, I think most developers would rather use something that's free. They'd rather use open source, they'd rather use you know, a trial account or, or, an account, or a lot of services, cloud services have, you know, sort of a, a, a community edition or some form of a free level, free tier. And that's how things tend to start. And so they're not really spending a lot of money on it, where it becomes a cost is, uh, hey, manager, by the way, we need to pay for this now because we've gotten this big or we need these additional features that, that do cost, that kind of thing. So, yeah, I'm sure there are people that have been drunken sailors and spending money left and right. But I, I don't I think it's more the unknown spending as opposed to the quantia spending. That's I'm more concerned about that. So I'll, I'll just share with you recent experiences working with one of the staff who happened to put something on a server they already had. It wasn't ours. Okay. We said, okay, that was good to get something going. It wasn't in production. It was, it was some prototyping that the person was doing and okay, cool. Let's move it over here. And it's now, you know, under our sort of visibility and management. That's what I'm more concerned about. Uh. I think this cost issue is going to become a bigger factor. And I think people are going to look for somebody who's a trusted third party to help them sort that out a little bit and evaluate it. But my question then becomes, who is a trusted third party these days? We see tons of these digital consultants. It's a nice little cottage industry now. It includes mm -hmm. everybody from Accenture to the guy down the block. The issue I'm having with all of this is, they all seem to say the same thing. I mean, basically, you should show up and, you know, have some mature processes and make sure you call them. It's the same thing up and down the line. So how do I know who is a real uh, valuable partner and who might be just a charlatan? Well, it can, this is kind of goes to the people's people side of it, psychology side of it, which is what's their motivation? Every consultant's, well, not every, most consultants' motivation, most big whatever firm motivation is this project is there so we can get more projects, more work, right? So we'll we'll do an assessment on your on your spend so we can come in and help you change all of that and make recommendations. And I'm not saying it's it's hundred percent it's not legit or not. You know, good information, but it is going to have a bias because they'd like to sell you more work. Yeah, you know, if you can, I would look for someone who specializes in doing that kind of analysis and then moves on. And there are people that do that, you know, that aren't looking to stay with you for three years after you do your two month project. And uh, that's one way. Now, the other way is you have a relationship with a big consulting firm or somebody that you already work with, they know your environment really well. They know how your finances flow and accounting works, you know, because they're part of projects that you're already involved in. They're going to have a bias, right? Because they 
would still like to stay with you. And of course, that partner is incented to grow the grow that account more. But it, they do know you and you've got a relationship and there's a whatever level of trust that is. So yeah, I, I think it's that's the judgment call versus when I'm when I'm looking at anybody I'm looking at. So what's the thing after this when they come back to me with the answer? What are they going to propose? And there may be some, some things I want them to propose. That's the other option too, Mike. I think some of the larger companies in this space, there's, there's always this danger. You meet somebody and you're like, whoa, these guys really know what they're doing and they're specialists. And then you sign the contract. And, you know, a week later, a school bus pulls up and all these kids come out and start, you know, pouring over things and they don't know anything about the business. And you're kind of like scratching your head, like, why am I paying these rates? So, I guess, is there any way to evaluate these types of providers of services before you sign the contract? Well, full disclosure, I was one of those people getting out of the school bus when <laughs> my first job in the school. So I have to tell you that, you know, I, I didn't know I was guilty of it, but I am guilty of that. Um, <clears throat> you know, in, in those kind of selling opportunities when they're you know the the really impressive person comes in and talks to you about how the technical person right that comes in and i call it the technical tennis match plays the back and forth tennis match between your person and their person and the rest of the people don't know what they're talking about but they seem to be having a good match so it must must be good right yeah. ask is that the person that's going to be working with us or who is it that would be working with us on our project oh that's yet to be assigned well, I'd like to meet who that's going to be. I'd like to to you to figure that out. And if it's not the person who did the sales call with us, uh, let's figure that out because that's extremely important. Who it is matters. And are they going to be, you know, they're going to, maybe they can play some portion of that technical tennis match. Maybe they'll be just as good. But that's who I'm counting on to deliver from your firm. So I, I it comes down to that person or that team I, that I would look at. All right. As usual, it's going to be another case of digital buyer beware. Hey, Mitch, enjoyed the chat. Thanks for being on the show. You too, Mike. Always a pleasure. And I enjoyed our conversation today. All right. And thank you all for listening to our show. You can find it on the Digital CXO website where you can find complete episodes as well as show notes with links to the stories we discussed today. And you can follow us on your favorite social media platform and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. We'll talk to you again next time.